So in our first session, we dealt with the heart of pastoral ministries, of working from joy in Jesus with joy for the joy of our people. And then in the second session, we reflected on the two main tasks, teaching, feeding, and leading, governing. And now in this final session, I want to address, we could call it two practical issues, two places where the surrounding world intersects and creates points of tension today in pastoral ministry and in the church. At first glance, you might think, well, husband of one wife and not quarrelsome. Sounds like a random pairing. Why those two? How do they go together? Um, we were planning on this. I talked to Rich. I'm assuming Rich is talking to Dan, and we're trying to think of what topics, and they suggested the two, and uh, we can make that happen. We can pair them together. As I've thought about it, I, there are some interesting connections. There are at least two threads, among others, that hold these two together. First, both are particularly countercultural today. One has been for a while. The other, at least to me and my experience and anecdotes, feels all of a sudden more recent. I don't think I would have felt the weight of it or talked about it the same way five years ago or definitely like 10 years ago. Some of that has to do with the internet. Also, this was surprising to me, both of these issues seem to have been live issues in Ephesus such that that's what 1 Timothy 2 is about. <laughs> so 1 Timothy 2 deals with these two issues and then he goes right into the elder qualification. So these are relevant. They're relevant things. In that original uh, context of the qualifications, verse 8 of 1 Timothy 2, he says, I desire that in every place the men should pray lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. These are, these are characteristic sins of men. Anger and quarreling. Because of the way God made us, because of his charge, because of the way that he means for, ma for males to engage with the world and go into the world and interact with each other, that good back and forth, that iron sharpening iron on the one hand happens, and then quarreling can happen as it goes awry. And then also in 1 Timothy 2, He turns to women in verses 9 to 15. Admittedly, the issues here in 1 Timothy 2 are about modest dress and proper submissiveness in the context of the assembly of the church, but at least this, there are male-female, man-woman relationship issues. Not the same as husband of one wife, but related. So this first qualification is literally one woman man. Mias gunaikos Andra. In, in 20, just a few years ago at Desiring God, we surveyed about 8,000 users. So this is not a professional academic study with uh, doctoral methodology. This is just, hey, Desiring God users, we want to ask you a few questions. But what's interesting about this group is these are people who are coming to the Desiring God website. So I guess most of them are professing to be Christian, and they're willing to take this extra step to participate in a survey. We're not paying them for the survey. So I'm guessing this is a, uh, perhaps a good representation of what is in our churches. This is not a survey of the culture. This is a survey of people who are doing Christian things and coming to a Christian website online. And the study found that ongoing pornography was not only dreadfully common, but increasing among younger adults. As you move from the older categories down to the younger, you, there's no shock here or surprise. According to our survey, more than 15% of Christian men over the age of 60 in our survey admitted to ongoing use of pornography. So men 16 and older, 15%. It was more than 20% for men in their 50s, 25% for men in their 40s, 30% for men in their 30s, but nearly 50% of self-professing Christian men ages 18 to 29, again, in our survey, acknowledged ongoing use of pornography. The survey found a similar trend among women as it increased as you get to younger age. 
but not in the same proportion. So 10% of females, 18 to 29, 5% in their 30s, increasingly less in the 40s, 50s, 60 plus. When you hear that, and that's, I'm assuming in some ways, like in the church, that's like in Christianity. That's, on a, that's in a place where we're re- planting a real clear flag as a Christian place. We're surveying Christians. You hear that? Then you see glimpses of our surrounding society, which you can't help but see if you haven't retreated from the world. They seem like the one woman man is an endangered species today in some places. In our over-sexualized and sexually confused society, it may seem increasingly rare to come across married men who are faithful to their bride, all the way down, body, mind, heart. And it may seem even more rare to find unmarried men who are on the trajectory to be that kind of faithful, to have that kind of fidelity toward a wife one day. So of the basic 15 qualifications for pastor elders, it might be that one woman man is the one that runs most against the grain of our society today. Take a look at them, analyze them, give some thoughts, see what you think. It might be this one is the one that is most countercultural in our generation. We are relentlessly pushed in precisely the opposite direction. Television, movies, advertising, social media, locker room talk, and even casual conversations condition the 21st century man to approach women as a consumer of many rather than the husband and protector of one. The cultural icons teach our men to selfishly compromise and to take rather than to carefully cultivate and guard fidelity to one woman. But what's rare in society, I believe, is easier to find, thank God, in faithful churches. We shouldn't assume that the grace of God has no effect on our people. That's my experience. It's not as bad in the church as it is in the world, though it's serious and we should be concerned. The true gospel is genuinely powerful. And it changes lives even under such intense pressure as from a world like ours. Brothers, you can be pure. You can retrain your plastic brain. So the last 25 years of neurology have taught us things plastic. It's not hardwired. We use this language often of I'm wired, I'm wired, I'm wired. No, you're not. You've conditioned yourself with habits that can be rewired. Your brain is plastic. You can walk a different path by God's spirit, even if that other path was once yours. And in the company of others who enjoy pleasures far deeper than promiscuity, you can become a one-woman man that our world needs and the church needs. So just because being a one-woman man is essential for church leaders, it does not mean that it's irrelevant for every Christian. The other qualifications mentioned earlier that Don Carson says they're remarkable for being unremarkable. And part of that is because we're supposed to be exemplars. There's average, healthy examples of healthy Christianity to our flock. What's demanded of the church officers is not academic declaration, world-class intellect, talents above the common man, special purity and holiness. Rather, the elders, as we've seen, are to be examples of normal, healthy, mature Christianity. So this is relevant for all the flock. The elder qualifications are flashpoints of the Christian maturity to which every believer should aspire and which every Christian, with God's help, can attain in real measure. So brothers, we watch ourselves and we lead our people. God does not mean for us to relegate one woman manhood to formal leaders. This is the glorious, serious, joy-filled calling of every follower of Christ. It's a word for every Christian man, married and bachelor, and there's a word too for Christian women. One man, woman, in 1 Timothy 5, 9. 
So this is for married and unmarried alike. Clearly, one woman man applies to married men. In faithfulness to the marriage covenant, the married man is to be utterly committed in his mind, in heart, in body to his one wife. Being a one woman man has implications for where we go, who we are with, how we interact with other women, what we do with our eyes, where we let our thoughts run, what we access on our computers and smartphones, how we use direct messaging, whether text messages or emails or other forms, and what we watch on screens. It's also relevant for married women, for married men in the positive sense, not just the negative. This is what I mean by that. Not only must we be one woman men and not multiple women men, but the call to marriage is to not be a zero woman man. If you're married, you're called to have one and not zero. No ministry mistress. Living as though you're not married. Neglecting to care adequately for wife and family. If you're married, faithfulness to the covenant requires your interests being divided, as in 1 Corinthians 7, but divided with only your one wife. How about the question of, do you have to be married to be a one-woman man? The question often comes up as we work through the qualifications. I believe that the challenge to be a one-woman man applies not only to married men, but to the unmarried as well. Are you a flirt? Do you move flippantly from one dating relationship to another? Do do you enjoy the thrill of connecting with women emotionally without moving with intentionality toward marriage? I I think long before a bachelor marries, he is setting and revealing a trajectory of fidelity. I think this applies to unmarried men. If there's a one-woman man, like that kind of man, in every season of life, in every relationship, however serious, we are preparing ourselves, single men, to be one-woman men or not by how we engage with and entreat the, and treat the women in our lives. So at this point, in casting it in those terms, you might be asking, what about the one-man woman? What about the husband of one wife? What about that wording of the qualification? I think it goes back to KJV. That's in the ESV. He should be a husband of one wife. Seems like a clearer box to check. Husband of one wife. It's either true or it's not. Husband of one wife or not. Either you're married to one woman or more. None of these questions about whether your eyes and your mind might be wandering unfaithfully or your connections are shady. Nothing that would apply to the unmarried if it's just husband of one wife. In a previous generation, this may have been the most debated of the elder qualifications for a while. Maybe some of you guys are aware of that. What What does husband of one wife mean? Some take it to mean that church leaders must be married. I don't think so. I mean, Jesus did really effective ministry without being married. Now, but you say, oh, that's Jesus, Jesus. Okay, well, Paul, I I think, it seems like Paul was unmarried. Others say that husband of one wife bars divorcees who have been remarried. Others claim that it was designed specifically to rule out polygamy. It definitely does that. But one problem among others with each of those interpretations is that they take this qualification and they make it digital. It's either, it's either or. Either you're one woman, uh, husband of one wife, or husband of two. And making it digital. It's, it's, a, it's a box. It's an e- easy answer. It's plainly true or false. Rather than it being analog, like the rest of the qualifications. We've already seen this with the ones we've looked at. The elder qualifications are a grid for evaluation for the elders of a local church, with the congregation of the local church, to make evaluations. These are not easy boxes to check. These are not either easy yes, yes or no's. These are qualitative, and they invite evaluation. They are brilliantly designed to prompt the elders and the congregation to make a collective decision about a man's readiness for church office. So sober-minded, self-controlled, 
respectable, hospitable. These are unavoidably subjective categories. They're not easy either ors. They require the evaluation. And I believe Paul intended us to read one man, woman in those terms, requiring the same spirit of discernment. It's not as black and white. Rather, we want to ask, is this man, this candidate, is this man today, as far as we know, through years of tested faithfulness, is he faithful to his one wife? Is he above reproach in the way he relates to women? Is he manifestly a one-woman man? Brothers, we should ask ourselves these questions and be ruthlessly honest about them. Am I a one-woman man? Don't just check the box easy. Oh, got this one ring, got one marriage, one-woman man, check the box, move on to other foci. Am I a one-woman man? What, if anything, in my life would call that into question? What habits, what relationships, what patterns do I need to bring into the light with trusted brothers and ask God to afresh make me truly, deeply, gloriously, increasingly a one-woman man? There's a sense in which this category can grow and increase A special concern here is what we do with our communications. We, we now are able to have these private communications like never before. And text messages, Facebook, the DMs. Um, those are my initials. So whenever I hear people talking about sliding into DMs, I'm like, wait, wait, oh, okay. Direct messages, okay. Um, the, we, I have several times, not just, not only with pastors, but with pastors, Many times of the stories I've heard of men compromising their quality as one woman men has involved electronic private messages. So brothers, be careful. At the level of the public qualification, if you're married, ask yourself, what's your reputation? Do people think of you, your speech, your conduct, your body language as joyfully and ruthlessly faithful to your wife? Or might there be some question? Are you known for demonstrating self-control publicly and privately for the sake of the purity and fidelity of your marriage? For the unmarried, we got some among us, for the unmarried, what do your friendships and relationships look like with the opposite sex? Do you genuinely treat women as sisters in all purity, as in 1 Timothy 5, 2? Are you dabbling with pornography, trying to stop, but still allowing yourself room for it? Or have you become tragically desensitized to impurity because of the boundaries being crossed on your screens, in your thought life, on the internet, in your interactions? Are you a one-woman man waiting for your one woman? Brothers, in Christ, we need not be satisfied with anything less. No matter what society tells you, this is possible. Try as hard as you can. You will not be satisfied with anything else. But in Christ, we are called to be one woman men in a world that expects and encourages far less. And we do well to beware it. Keep it in mind, not be subtly put to sleep. And in Christ, we have the resources we need to see that fidelity becomes reality. This is what God expects and makes possible in the church and requires of his leaders. Just just a practical word here as we transition from one woman man to not quarrelsome. Brothers, one thing I see and uh, feel in my own heart and see in people close to me, men and women, because of the conditions of society today, is it is so easy to cast your own heart in the position of a victim. Here's what I mean how it relates to one woman man. Brothers, you can seize your heart. You can direct your heart. You can renounce disordered desires. Don't just move away from them. Renounce them. Tell your soul, let your soul know that's out of place. No. How you handle your heart 
in individual moments forms a pattern that profoundly shapes and forms your plastic brain and your desires. So do not pretend, this is rampant in our world today, do not pretend to adjust the fixed objective world outside of you to your subjective inside. Rather, take hold of your subjective heart and you tell it, heart, feel reality. Be shaped by truth. Learn how to feel what you should feel about reality. This is what wedding rings are for, right? It can be invisible. All those vows happened so long ago. What happened? It's a reminder, physical space, taking up space on your hand, objective, fixed reminder. What you pledged before God and before those witnesses, and not that you would just keep the word of the law and don't go somewhere different in your heart, but that you would shape your heart, seize your heart, direct your heart to fill up the substance of the fixed, objective reality of your marriage vows. So easy to think about uh, laying the train tracks. And one approach to train tracks would be to think of all the places you can't go on the train because the tracks aren't there. Well, there's no tracks going there, so I can't go over there. Another way to think of it is you can go somewhere because there are tracks. Tracks give life. Tracks give movement. The, the bounds of the covenant, the promises of your covenant are tracks in which to run and grow and live and develop your heart. Uh, my experience, and I think it would be the experience of many men in this room, and if you're not, you can experience this. After 16 years, I love my wife and am more, am more attracted to her now after 16 years than when we got married. And I think that's because in the commitments of the covenant, the objective reality, God has been pleased by his spirit and a lot of effort to shape my heart, shape my heart by the vows, shape my heart by the promises and brothers, it can get better and better. So, seize the moments, form habits which can reform and reshape your heart, rather than the utter folly of thinking you can reshape the world out there on this subjectivity. And all that in the matrix of God's grace. His word that reveals the truth of reality. Prayer, where we ask him for help. The accountability of brothers, accountability of your wife, who might check your text messages every time she picks up your phone. So, not quarrelsome. May God give us grace to be one woman men. And that brings us to not quarrelsome. The 400-year-old KJV translates it with surprising timelessness. Not a brawler. I think that, that still works. That still speaks. We know what's being talked about when it says not a brawler. Verse 3 in the KJV is, is especially rich. Not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, that's the most memorable, but patient, not a brawler. And then verse 7 is a really good translation of verse 7. He must have a good report of them which are outside. Easy to forget that one. He ends with that one. We'll do that next time. Of the full list of the 15, not a brawler is one of just four negative traits. So of the 15, four are cast in negative terms. Modern translations like the ESV, NIV has not quarrelsome, or the NASB has not pugnacious. But the language of the KJV has endured. I really like not a brawler. We still know what a brawler is. And it doesn't take much foresight to think what a problem it would be to have a brawler as an elder or a whole team of brawlers, God forbid. And when we talk about brawler here, remember, uh, violence has already been covered by not a striker. Okay, so this, this brawling here is talking about a spirit. It's talking about words. It's not talking about striking. 
May God not give us any elders who just punch one of our people in the face. We're ruling that out. So the physical was already covered in not violent but gentle. And now what's left is the temperamental and especially the verbal. It's so important. Um, I was a catcher in high school. And one thing they would talk about is that the measuring rod of a catcher is his arm. If you can hose a guy going down the second, they're not going to steal on you. Even if you're not perfect on your blocking, you can work on your framing and your signal calling. But if a catcher's got a good arm, that's what the other team sees. Like, whoa, we're, we're not stealing today, guys. You know, catcher's got a good arm. That's his measuring rod. For us as pastors, our words are measuring rods for us. Uh, how pastors use and expend their words. The, the economics of a pastor's word is so important for the work of pastoral ministry. That verbal aspect. We all know the war within us about how the flesh of man finds itself at odds with the spirit. By nature, this is true of me, maybe true of you in some respect, by nature we are prone to quarrel when we should make peace and to not ruffle feathers when we should speak up. I think there's dual tendencies in many of us. There may be some extreme personalities that have only one tendency. I would not be surprised if most of us have dual tendencies toward error. And in a day in which so many are prone to sharpness online and prone to cowardice in person, we need leaders who are not quarrelsome. And at the same time, these same men have the courage to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. 2 Timothy 4.2. We need men who contend for the faith without being contentious. We need pastors who are not brawlers, and yet they know when and how to say the needful hard word. We need men who know how to disagree without creating unnecessary division. We need pastors and elders with sober minds and enough self-control to avoid needless controversies and with enough conviction and courage to move gently and steadily toward conflicts that await wise, patient leadership. The flip side of this not quarrelsome would be the positive term peaceable. That Greek there, amakos. Titus 3.2 is the only other New Testament use of the word that we translate not quarrelsome, amakos. Titus 3.2. Titus 3.2 is great for an election year. Put this in your pocket for 2024. Remind Christians to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. That's stunning. James 3, which warns about not all of you should be teachers, You'll be judged with greater strictness. James 3 directs us to the wisdom from above. And here's how James captures the wisdom from above. So wisdom, sober-mindedness, wisdom to govern. James 3, 17 to 18. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Healthy pastors are peacemakers at heart, not pugilists. A quote from Mufasa in The Lion King. Simba says, Dad, you're so brave. And he says, I'm only brave when I have to be, Simba. Being brave doesn't mean you go looking for trouble. That's the heart of the great lion and the great pastor. We're not those who go looking for trouble. We're just ready to defend our beloved flock when necessary. We don't fight for sport. We fight to secure and defend true peace. We are not wolf hunters, but competent defenders of the flock. We know first and foremost, as Christ's representatives to his people, that our God is a God of peace. Romans 15, 13. Our message is the gospel of peace. 
Ephesians 6.15. Our Lord Jesus himself made peace. Ephesians 2. Colossians 1. And he is our peace. Ephesians 2.14. We preach peace to those who are far off and peace to those who are near. Ephesians 2.17. Christian leaders want real peace. We want it enough to not avoid necessary conflict that may be required to secure real peace. But the goal is peace. Conflict, our engaging in controversy, serves the goal of peace. And making peace is not unique to Christian leaders. We just want to be exemplars in this. We insist it in our leaders so that they can model and encourage peacemaking for the whole church. Blessed are the peacemakers, Jesus says, for they shall be called sons of God. Let us pursue what makes for peace, Romans 14, 19. Strive for peace with everyone, Hebrews 12, 14. If possible, as far as it depends on you, as all of you in the church, live peaceably with all. So this kind of peacemaking means not only leading our flocks in preserving and enjoying peace, but also making the peace that sometimes requires confrontation first. Sometimes it gets worse before it gets better. Some controversies can be avoided. Some cannot. And so we engage them not because we simply want to fight and win, but because we want to win those who are being deceived and protect the flock from their deception. So God means for his spiritual leaders to have the kind of spiritual magnanimity to rise above the allure of petty disputes and to press valiantly for peace and Christ-exalting harmony in the places that angels might fear to tread. Give us leaders like that. This is really hard in the internet age when we don't get to see the deceivers necessarily face-to-face in our space. And we try to discern what are the deceptions in our congregation, not just in the world in general, like not just the Gospel Coalition or Nine Marks, not just deceptions out there in California. What are the dangers in this congregation? It's very easy to get hyped up about somebody else's dangers and let other dangers run rampant in your own place, especially in our polarized day. We get excited about preaching against the left or preaching against the right, and we do it in the wrong context. Paul's letters to Timothy and Titus are particularly helpful in this regard. He's the veteran apostle. He gives his counsel to younger leaders in the thick of church conflict. And I think maybe no single passage is better than 2 Timothy 2. 24 to 26. So I want to look at that briefly and observe five things quickly about 2 Timothy 2, 24 to 26. I think alongside 1 Peter 5, 1 to 5. So other than the qualifications and Hebrews 13, 17 and 1 Peter 5, 1 to 5, this may be one of my top church leadership passages. 2 Timothy 2, 24 to 26. Let me read it. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. All right, so one negative there that then pivots to four positives. So Paul fleshes out this negative, not quarrelsome, with four great positive charges. Here they are quickly. First, kind to everyone. The presence of conflict does not excuse a lack of kindness. How pastors carry themselves in conflict is as important as as engaging in the right battles. And the Lord calls His servants not just to be kind to the sheep while treating the potential wolves like trash, But Paul just said it. He said, kind to everyone, both to the faithful and those who are at present seen to be opponents. And then he says, able to teach, which we talked about, which includes both ability and inclination. 
the main trait that distinguishes pastor, elders, and deacons. And in the previous verse, this is verse 23, Paul refers to foolish, ignorant controversies. Ignorant. You could call that, that literally is untaught or uneducated. Foolish, untaught controversies. How many conflicts in our churches begin in and are fueled by honest ignorance? And the need for the pastors in that moment is not to come in guns blazing. Our people need to be taught. They don't know any better. They're uneducated on the subject, and the country is coming out of some area where they need to be taught. And who should teach them? The pastors should teach them. People need patient teaching on the topic, perhaps. And we're fundamentally teachers. So conflict can be a time when humble, careful, Bible-saturated teaching is needed most. And hopefully in the wisdom of the plurality we can decide how to do that. So that it's not guns blazing, but that it is teachative. Next is patiently enduring evil. Rarely do serious conflicts, if ever, uh, resolve as quickly as we'd like. Sometimes that happens. Sometimes God does a, a miracle or something unexpected, but often they don't resolve as quickly as we would like. You need the pastoral superpower of patience. Whether some evil is really afoot in your church or it's just an honest difference of opinions, good pastors lead the way in our patience. And that does not mean resigning ourselves to inaction. It's a really important trait in pastoral ministry. Do not fall off the horse with neglect and inaction and ignoring some emerging issue. Or on the other hand, just bull rush it. Just like guys, we're going to fix this right away. What's the problem? We'll fix it tonight. There are some things that come up in elder meetings like, it's a fix it tonight thing. There's a few, there's a few fix it tonight things. But so much of pastoral ministry is not fix it tonight. And then when you exercise the patience of not fix it tonight, then there's the danger of out of sight, out of mind, we just let it go. And it goes underground. And you know what happens when it goes underground? It comes back worse. <laughs> so this is a real art in pastoral ministry. It's so good that we do this as a team to learn how, how do we deal with issues patiently where there's a sequence of action? We can't do it all right now. We need patience. But we don't then let it just pass into neglect and it gets worse. We deal with it one step at a time. It's like trying to undo a knot. I've been doing this on boys' baseball gloves. You got to get that knot undone. Or <laughs> my daughter Mercy brought a necklace last week. She's like, Daddy, help. She's six years old. And the, her, the necklace had been all tied up in a knot. And uh, if I bull rush that necklace, it's going to get worse. If I just dive right in and start pulling strings on the boys' glove, it's going to get worse. But if I just sit around and try to like get the angle on how does this not come out, if I don't ever engage it, it's not going to move forward either. And there's some parts of those really naughty issues. We have these naughty issues in pastor, pastoral ministry, and, and you can't see all the way down to the bottom of the knot. You don't know yet what's going to need to be done at the end. But if you take a few strings out, take out the string, the next string, see the string, take out that next string. Be faithful in that. And then collect data for the next, for the next step. This is so important in pastoral ministry, to move patiently forward. Not letting it just sit, not bull rushing it, move forward with patience, the pastoral superpower. The fourth and final charge from 2 Timothy 2 is correcting his opponents with gentleness. So Paul commends kindness, teaching, patience, and he doesn't leave aside correction. Very clear about that. God calls pastors to rightly handle his word, which is profitable not only for teaching, but exposing error and correcting it, laying a path, like writing, ortho, making it straight, laying a straight path for healing. The goal is first protection of the flock from error and then restoration of those in error in a spirit of gentleness, Galatians 6.1. So the pastor's heart for peace and not polemics comes out in the kind of soul that endures in needful conflict. We pray that God may perhaps grant them repentance. 
We long for restoration, not revenge. We pray first for repentance, not for retribution. Retribution. We're not in this to be proven right at the end. We want to win them to Jesus. And brothers, we remember that the real war is not against flesh and blood, especially within the household of faith. (laughs) There is a cosmic war that far outstrips any culture war. Our final enemy is Satan, not our human opponents. We want them to come to repentance, to come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil through kindness, humble teaching, patience, gentle correction. We do not first want to be rid of our opponents, but we want to win them back from Satan. So how then do pastors pick their battles? What foolish controversies do we wisely avoid? What conflicts require our courage to address them kindly, patiently, and gently with humble teaching? And and as we've noted at the beginning, the plurality of elders is so, so critical here. These things aren't coming to us in a way that fall on us, let's hope, to make the decision by ourselves. We're going to get these wrong, have the wrong instincts in certain situations. It is so important to have the counsel of duly appointed, qualified, mature brothers to speak into these countless prudential issues in the life of the church. And in doing it, we remember that the heart of Christian ministry is not creating privilege for ourselves, not creating the easiest path, not taking up privileges but laying them down, not gravitating toward the easy work, but gladly crucifying personal comfort and ease to do the hard work to serve others. So when trying to discern what are the silly controversies to avoid and what are the conflicts to engage with courage, these four sample questions to ask, the kinds of things. Not an exhaustive list, not a perfect list or close to it. It's the kinds of questions where I hope to be able to get at where my flesh is not following the spirit. The battles I want to pick that I shouldn't or the battles I want to avoid that I shouldn't and us as a team. So first question, is this conflict about me? Is it about my ego, my preferences, my threatened illusion of control? Or is it about my Lord, his gospel, his church? In other words, is this for my glory or Jesus's? Radically change the way we approach these things. Am I remembering that my greatest enemy is not others or even Satan, but my own indwelling sin? Am I checking my own logs going into this? Second, what's the overall tenor of my ministry and our shared ministry together as a team? Do we just do one fight after another? Like, is that what we do? When one gets done, there's this subconscious restlessness and we're looking for the next one. Are there seasons of peace? Do I appreciate peace? Or does it kind of make me nervous? And send me looking for the next fight. Do I need conflict because I crave attention and drama? I think that's a question pastors should ask themselves. Is securing and preserving Christian peace my goal in the end? Third question here. Am I going with my flesh or against my flesh? Which inclines me to fight when I shouldn't and back down when I should kindly, patiently, gently engage. As the servant of the Lord, not self, am I avoiding petty causes that an unholy part of me wants to pursue while taking on the difficult, painful, righteous, costly causes that an unholy part of me wants to flee? One aspect of this, especially as our lives are confused with online kerfuffles and controversies, Is this conflict my responsibility? Is this conflict part of my objective calling? Is it in my church or have I just gone down a wormhole online? And And this isn't really a threat to my church. Not really. You can tell yourself anything is. But is it really? Is this part of your calling? Or 
is Satan happy as can be that you are neglecting your objective calling at your church to play in something? Last question here. Am I simply angry at my opponents desiring to show them up or expose them? Or am I compassionate for them? Genuinely praying that God would free them from deception and grant them repentance. Am I inclined to anger against them? Are tears for them even a possibility? One last practical word here before we close. Um, Let me just, pastors gather, let me commend Bob Yarborough's commentary on the pastoral epistles. I think it's 2018 or 2019. Oh, it's so good. I'm going to that thing all the time. Uh, As a pastor, I find it so helpful to have a good stash of pastoral epistles, commentaries. And Bob Yarborough is the new favorite. I recommend his work. Here's his commentary on 1 Timothy 4.7. 1 Timothy 4.7 is, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. This is part of the pastorals that didn't feel very relevant until recently. I mean, I think reading the pastorals 20 years ago, 10 years ago, go right over that. Oh, it's such a shame they had irreverent, silly myths in the first century. And then recently it's been like, oh my. So we're not the first ones. So here's what Yarbrough says about 1 Timothy 4.7. I just find some golden practical wisdom here, at least questions to ask. He says, some ideas or proposals are so far beyond the pale of plausible that a pastor has no time or business giving them the dignity of extensive attention. This does not mean writing people off crudely, but overall, Paul's view and example is to focus on and promulgate the truths of Christ and the faith and not be distracted with undue attention to aberrant beliefs. Oh, that's so good. There are contemporary analogies, he says, for example, in conspiracy theories and so-called urban legends and endless issue-oriented and often polemical blogs and websites, increasingly taken over by politics, which most pastors find it wise to recuse themselves. It's good balance language. Not every pastor, he didn't give any law, but most, it's fair, most. So this is not a reductionistic call for all pastors, stay off social media, stay off the internet. Rather, more holistically, here's here's the issue. In our preaching and teaching, in our conversations, in our emails, our text messages, our online comments, do we focus on and promulgate the truths of Christ and the faith? Or our aberrant beliefs getting our attention? Practically then, one question you might ask yourselves about your preaching schedule, meeting agendas, conversations, is who sets the agenda? Is it the world? It's a very subtle danger. I'm engaging the news with a Christian perspective. And all the while, the world, the world, the world, the world sets the agenda. I'm thankful for your Christian response to the world. But you're only dealing with issues that the world keeps kicking up. Is it Twitter? Is it trending on Twitter? Is that what sets the agenda? Is it the never-ending flow of daily news that keeps us from giving our attention to what's really important and enduringly relevant? Is it the latest error you've been made aware of in a famous church or some famous Christian spokesman far, far away? Or is it even the loudest and most immature voices in your own church that are setting the agenda? When Yarbrough mentions Paul's example in that quote, he has a footnote. He says in the footnote, it is an ongoing source of scholarly frustration that Paul is not more specific about the names and views of his opponents. Here it is. He tends to focus on what he holds to be true and redemptive rather than allow gospel detractors to set the agenda for his remarks or exhaust his energies inventing so as to profile them. So Paul focuses on what he holds to be true and redemptive. And he does not allow gospel detractors to set the agenda. 
That's a good word for us in the information age. To be clear, it is not that gospel detractors don't inform Paul's ministry and don't inform our ministry. Indeed, they do. We have 13 letters from Paul that give evidence of his being seriously informed by and aware of quite a number of grave errors in his day. However, being aware of and responding and responding to error through a focus on what we hold to be true and redemptive is a far cry from letting error set the agenda. So God means for his ministers, together by a spirit, to strike the balance, dynamic as it can be. We can learn to avoid foolish controversies and move wisely toward genuine conflicts. We can be unafraid of disagreements among ourselves while not creating divisions. So important for a team. Not afraid to disagree and not prone to division. In a world of haters and trolls and brawlers, we are to be men set apart by Christ to lead his church who fight well in love for the sake of peace. So, brothers, we have a countercultural calling in this age, not only as pastors, but as Christians. Don't give in to the pressures, don't coast. Don't let the world take your lunch in subtle ways by setting the agenda. Save both yourself and your hearers. Pay careful attention to yourself and all the flock. And unblushing promise of reward. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So Father in heaven, I do thank you that in such times where the stakes are raised and we all feel pushed to the limits of our own wisdom. I thank you that you give us each other. You give us your spirit, first and foremost, dwelling in us, leading us, sobering our minds, prompting our thoughts. And you give us brothers to work together in the work and in such demanding situations to labor together, work together, and exercise wisdom in which conflicts to address with faithfulness, with patience, pursuing peace, and which silly controversies to avoid. So Father, give us wisdom in this. Um, it probably gets more difficult in coming years, and we want to grow in it, and we want to be faithful to the stewardship you've called us to. If we do politics, the politicians aren't going to come to our churches and teach the people the Bible. Who's going to teach them the Bible? Help us to be faithful at our post. Help us to know our calling together. Help us be holy in a countercultural calling. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.